In Israel today, they're celebrating the feast of Purim, also known as the Feast of Lots. And I was talking to David Frank, who lives in Israel with his wife Lundy and their two little twin girls. And it was the day before Purim, and I said, well, how do you, how do you say Happy Purim, or is it, what exactly do you say? And so he told me in Hebrew, and I said, okay. That's over my head, what did you just say? And basically he said, happy holidays. Everybody's having a party right now. The reason, here's, here's a little track that I have. It's just called the Feast of the Bible. And there's nine of them here. I'm just going to go through. We're having a diversion from our study in the book of Psalms because of what happened in Washington, D.C. yesterday when Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke before our Congress. He connected dots with the book of Esther. And that's what we're going to do this evening. It's going to be part one tonight and part two on Sunday. But let me just go through the feast because they're celebrating right now. I got to talk to not only Frank, but his wife, Lundy, and I said, so how are the twins? And she says, well, we're painting them all up. It's sort of like a Halloween type thing, only it's commemorating and celebrating the Feast of Purim. And they throw this party. Now, the last chapter of the book of Esther That's exactly what they do. They throw this huge party. Everybody is festive. They're in a festive mood. And so David, he's just saying happy holidays. And that's how they commemorate and they're celebrating. Um, They're eight hours ahead of us, of course. But uh, we're going to look at one of the nine feasts. It's called Purim. There's, of course, Passover, then Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, Trumpets called Rosh Hashanah, Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur, Tabernacles called Sukkot, Feast of Dedication, we know it as Hanukkah, and then the Feast of Lots, or Purim, uh, that's where it gets its name from, and we'll see that in our study tonight. But let me I'm going to give you a quick overview of the feast that we're going to get into tonight, and it's on this side. It's called the Feast of Lots, or Purim, is how it's pronounced. It marks the deliverance of the Jews through the Jewish Queen Esther in Shushan, Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And this is where the similarities begin to come together. Esther was her Persian name, meaning star. Her Hebrew name was Hadasha, which means myrtle. And the annual celebration of Purim is a joyous feast remembering the foiled plot of Haman to kill the Jews living in King Xerxes, slash Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is the title, but I'll talk about that in just a bit in his kingdom. Uh, Esther was um, cousin to Mordecai, who uncovered the plot and warned Esther, who then told the king, the king had Haman executed. And chapter 14 and 15, Adar, became days of joy and feasting. We're not going to get to chapter 9 this evening, but that's where it's recorded. So Purim is celebrated on the 14th of Adar in most cities, except those uh, surrounded by walls since the time of Joshua. Uh, Walled uh, cities celebrate Purim on the 15th. The Jewish leap year, and there's an extra month of Adar, and Purim is always in the second. And then some interesting facts on this feast. The word Purim means lots. And it refers to the lots that Haman cast to decide the day for the destruction of the Jewish people. So he actually rolled the dice to come up with the day in which all the Jews would be killed. Uh, God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, but his providence and provision are obvious, as we'll see that Mordecai refuses to bow his knee to Haman, and he does so because he's a Jew. Purim is a happy and a noisy holiday to to celebrate uh, a scroll of the book of Esther is read in the synagogue. Whenever Haman is mentioned, everybody boos, stamps their feet, and and, uh, shakes noisemakers called Googlers. So tonight, during the study, please don't do that. Whereas Mordecai, when he's mentioned, everybody cheers. I'm going to go back to what happens when it says in the synagogue they read a scroll. 
Over 20 years ago, before we were in the new edition here, somebody walked up to me and asked me if I'd be interested in a scroll that's written in Hebrew. And I took one look at it and I said, absolutely. I've had it in my office for the last 20 years. I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, um, the local synagogue in town didn't have a rabbi. They had what was called a cantor, and his name was Jeff. And he was uh, Levitical, a Kohen. And I invited him over because we had people who wanted to learn Hebrew. Maybe some of you were a part of that class. And I remember I had to talk to him once or twice because he came to teach Hebrew. But what he was doing, it was, he was using the Old Testament teaching <laughs> Judaism theology in the Hebrew class. And the gals are coming up to me and says, we're learning Hebrew, but we're not getting it the right perspective. So I pulled him aside. We talked a little bit. And he says, yeah, I understand. I'm here to teach the language. But he was in my office one day, and, and I said, Jeff, do me a favor. Uh, you're fluent in Hebrew. You teach it. What do I have here anyway? And he looked at it for 10 seconds. He says, you have a copy of the book of Esther. And I've had it, uh, I treasure this thing. And um, it says here that every Purim in a synagogue, they read the scroll. And uh, so this is uh, in the the Hebrew. Once the scroll has been damaged, this has been burned up in this corner. And it has a patch right here. And it's sewn together with thread. So it's probably very, very, very old, and I value it, and I'm going to, I wanted to start to study tonight by saying this is what they do in in the synagogue, they'll read the book of Esther, that's what we're going to do tonight, we're going to go through the book of Esther, I'd love to get through chapter 6, I doubt if I'm going to be able to pull that off, but I'm going to give it my best shot, and um, tie together, and um, I think if people had any idea how late the hour is right now, and there's churches around the country that are having a Wednesday night study, and if they're not even mentioning the significance of Purim and what happened yesterday in our capital, uh, to some degree, um, maybe they should consider working and doing something else <laughs> because it's that important what's going on right now. I'm just curious, how many of you heard Prime Minister Netanyahu speak yesterday. Just show me your hands. Most of you did. And um, I will say, of all the political speeches I've heard, including JFK's great speech that he made, ask not what you can do for your country, or but what, you know, I <laughs> got turned around. So that's the impression that I But it was a very famous speech that everybody remembers. But I've never been moved by a speech, politically speaking, like I heard uh, from our capital yesterday. He had over 40 standing ovations. I believe they were heartfelt and true. Shame on our president, who um, him and his cabinet were not there. Kerry was in another country, and Biden was also not present. Shame on them. It's interesting to me how... He said, no, I didn't watch it, but he had enough comments to uh, make, how do you comment on something you haven't watched or seen? And so I think he probably was watching it, probably cringing uh, during every part of it. With that much of a background, let's open our Bibles to the book of Esther tonight. Yesterday was a significant day in our history, I think as much as 9-11 was, and um, I think it'll go down as one of the most important speeches in our country. I don't believe for a second uh, he was there for political reasons, but the timing of this thing, and again, the timing of where we were in Psalm 102 on Sunday, I didn't plan that. We just make our way through the Bible. But our study was on the Holocaust on Sunday from Psalm 102, And if you don't uh, agree with the connection there with the Holocaust, certainly uh, 16 through 18 clearly tells us that the nation or the generation that sees the rebirth of Israel will see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. That that I am dogmatic about, and that that I'll stand firm on. I better get going because I really do want to see how far we can get in this book. The story of Esther, time-wise, where it's set, 
is between chapter 6 and 7 of, um, of Ezra. It would have been lived out, Esther would have lived with her uncle Mordecai, between the first return that was led under Zerubbabel. Now when I say return, return from where? It would have been returning from Babylon under the first um, trip under Zerubbabel. And then, then you have the book of Esther, and then you have the second one that was led by Ezra. Now Ezra was uh, more of a, a, a priest, and Zerubbabel more of a political leader. And uh, between these six and seven of the book of, es- of uh, Ezra, we have this story. It's sort of the decline uh, be, 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 between chapters one and two, there's a four-year gap. And I'll explain the history, what happened uh, there. But uh, I, like, I like this because um, it's, um, it's sort of like the book of Ruth, where you have a personal story that's happening during the time of the judges. And you have everyday life, and all of a sudden you have a very personal story about Boaz and Ruth. And uh, it's sort of similar with Esther. We have a slice of life that happened uh, during the reign of Ahasuerus. So let's dive right in and read the first couple of verses here. The, the, the book is divided into two sections, one through five. Um, I would subtitle Grave Danger for the Jewish People. Six through ten is the second part of the book of Esther, and I would entitle that Great Deliverance. The setting is Persia in the city of Sushan, which is modern-day Iran. And the time, it takes this, these uh, 10 chapters, roughly over a 10-year period of time. The dates are 483 to 473 B.C. With that much of a background, verse 1 of chapter 1. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Sushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of the Persians and the Medes. So here, uh, if you're a student of Daniel, we have um, the Medo-Persian Empire in all of its glory. And uh, the nobles and the princes of the province before him, uh, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. So he's throwing a party here. He's flipping the bill for 181 days from the princes from 127 different provinces, and then he puts the cherry sort of on the, on the cake of this party by having a seven-day special feast, and he, um, he lets them run wild and do whatever their little hearts desire. It says that when these days were completed, the king made a feast that lasted seven days for all the people who were present in Sushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There was blue and white linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen, purple silver rods, marble pillars, Couches were of gold, silver, mosaic pavement, alabaster, turquoise, white and black marble. They served drinks in golden vessels. Notice, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king, and in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for the king had ordered all his officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure." We're going from um, the ultimate dictator, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in the Babylonian Empire. If it was Friday and he said it was Tuesday, it became Tuesday. That's all there was to it. He had absolute authority, and he had that much power. The difference between the Babylonian uh, rule of law and the Medo-Persian rule of law 
is that once an edict was issued by the king, he himself could not overturn his own edict. And this is going to be important as we get into our study tonight. He's in charge. Don't, don't think he's not. But he's going to get tricked into writing a decree that he, is, uh, he isn't shown openly all, all that's going on. And as a result, he makes an edict that calls for the destruction of a whole race of people. And uh, he, can't, he can't undo that. Even he can't undo that. And the people that set him up to it, Haman knows full well. All we have to do is get him to sign the paper, and there's no way out. So that's a little bit of the setting. But I would say chapter 1 is really um, uh, two parties. The first party, 1 through 8, is... First of all, Ahasuerus is not his name, it's a title. Uh, it would be like Caesar. Well, it's Julius Caesar, or Caesar Augustus. So it's a title. This guy here is really Xerxes. That's who the king is. Ahasuerus is simply the title. And what can I say? He's flaunting it. He's flaunting what he has. Each person's little cup was different. And um, uh, he's, he's showing off. And... Uh, he wants to show off a little bit more. So evidently he had the most beautiful gal um, that he could find as his queen, and she's having her own party. So let's pick that up in verse 9. Her name is Vashti. Made a feast for all the, the gals, the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, now, you see the names of all these people right here? Just read them, because I'm not going to. <laughs> Who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring King Queen Vashti before the king. He wants her to wear her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious and he's angry, and it burned within him. So imagine uh, seven days nonstop, binging, drinking, and um, uh, he sends, he's got, he really wants to show off now, and so he wants to show off his wife, and she refuses to come, and he blows a fuse. That's basically what happens. Then the king said to his wise men, who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew the law and the justice, and those closest to him being this guy, that guy, the other guy, the next guy after him, and then that guy and that guy, seven of them. Seven princes of Persia of Media who had access to the king's presence and who had ranked highest in the kingdom. So these are the top-notch right-hand man of King Xerxes. What are we going to do with Vashti? according to the law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to him by the eunuchs. What are we going to do with her? And Memekin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes of these 127, did I say? 127 provinces. Not only you, but also all the princes and all the people and all who are in the provinces of a King Ahasuerus. Because the queen's behavior will become known to all the women so that they will despise their husband in their eyes when they report. And King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, and she did not. This very day the noble ladies of Persia will say to the king's uh, officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen and thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. King, if you let her get away with this, they're all watching. What are you, you going to do? And um, if you let her get away with this, she's going to set the pattern, and we're in big trouble. Well, here's the advice, verses 19 to 22. If it please the king, let a royal decree go out from him. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, now notice, and this is important, so that it will not be altered. King Ahasuerus, you know, if you make the decree, 
that once it's decreed, nobody can change it. And Vashti will know it too. And Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal portion to another who is better than she. And when the king's decree which we will make is proclaimed throughout all the empire, for it is great that all the wives will honor their husbands, both small and great. In other words, now it will have just the opposite effect. And uh, the reply pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the words of Memekin. And he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province of its own uh, script, and to every people in her own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. I'm not going to get into the women's right movement or um, feminism or any of that except to say this. The gospel of Jesus Christ has done more for women's rights than any other um, event in history where there's neither male nor female, uh, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. Somebody want to give me a name in or not? So I'm not trying to... um, uh, make a macho statement in verse 1 here that uh, the man is the dictator of the house. No, not the dictator of the house. But if you read 1 Corinthians 11, very simply the first three verses, the Lord has just established um, an order uh, in the household. And it's, it's not one of dictatorship, but it's, it's one of having um, where it says that the, uh, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man. And I, I kind of compare it to, I know I'm getting a little sidetracked here, more of um, people being equal, but when we're a unit or a family, then there has to be an order, just like we would have in the military. And so that's why there's ranks and orders, so that we can be of one heart and of one mind. All right, I'm just going to leave that with that. The edict was made. It can't be changed. And now between chapter 1 and 2, we have four years that pass. Last time I taught through this, I have a gap in here of four years, and I had to do a little research and figure out why I put it there. Because the next verse just says, after these things. Well, a whole lot went on between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Let me read what happened in history during these four years. In history, the, this, the campaign of King Xerxes against the Greeks. So what not, we're now learning is went from the Babylonian to the Medo-Persian, and now the Medo-Persian Empire is starting to wane because of a defeat that they suffered um, by the Greeks, and I'll get to that. Since the Bible gives us no record of this campaign, Xerxes led a great army against the Greeks. Now the secret of the strength of the Persian was its sheer numbers. But the individual Persian soldier was not as well trained as an individual Greek soldier. And the Greeks emphasized the individual. And as a result, one Greek soldier could have taken care of 10 Persians. So that at the battle of Thermopylae, only a few men could um, could get through this narrow pass. They've made a movie about it. Some of you have seen it. As a result, the Greeks won a significant victory over the Persian army. It was an unfortunate defeat for Xerxes, but God was overruling, and the power was about to be passed from Persia to Greece. Now, again, just a real short sidetrack here. Daniel chapter 2. The Lord lays all out those empires that would be world-ruling empires. He starts with Babylon, uh, and then he goes to the Medo-Persian ones. That's where we are right now. But between chapters 1 and 2, we had this major defeat against Xerxes by the Greeks, and so now we're seeing eventually Alexander the Great, who's going to come on the scene next. All right, I'll just leave that with that, but... Now, he returns from this defeat, and um, he remembered Vashti. You know, he just, they just got their butts kicked, excuse the language, by the Greeks, and he comes back, and I think maybe he's kind of wishing that Vashti was still around. 
what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, uh, their advice was, well, let's have a beauty contest. Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and let the, the king appoint offices in all the provinces of the kingdom that they might gather all the, the beautiful young virgins to Sushan. So we're talking Miss Universe here, or Miss America, where you have a beauty contest, and the prettiest gal gets to go and represent that particular province. Verse 4, Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti, and this thing pleased the king. And he did so. He said, sounds like a good idea to me. Let's have a beauty contest. And um, the only judge in this beauty contest was Ahasuerus himself. All right, now for the first time in the, in the scriptures, we're going to be introduced to the key players who in verse 6 were introduced to Mordecai. It says in Sushan, the city, there was a Jew whose name was Mordecai, And I'll simply say that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And he was carried away from Jerusalem with the captives. So now we're going back to the Babylonian time where he was taken into captivity. And um, the captives who had been captive, when Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carried him away. So is everybody tracking with me, the time frame we hear? So it would have been during the same time as Daniel. Daniel was taken away in the third siege against Jerusalem. That's when Daniel, no, Daniel went with the first one. I take that back. They took the cream of the crop, but Daniel was uh, with the first siege. But evidently, Mordecai was a part of that, that same period of time. So he's been around for quite a while. And verse 7 tells us that we're introduced to Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither a father or mother, and the young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her and raised her as his own daughter. So um, she was raised by Mordecai. Esther, therefore, is Jewish. And so it was when the king's command and decree was heard and when many young women were gathered at Sushan, the citadel, under the the custody of Haggai, uh, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace and into the care of Haggai, however you pronounce it, the custodian who was over the women. And now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides allowing an allowance. Uh, she had seven choice maidservants were provided for her in the king's palace. And they moved her and her maidservants to the best place for the house of the woman. And Esther had not revealed her people or her kindred. They didn't tell anyone. Esther didn't tell anyone. She was Jewish because Uncle Mordecai uh, charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the, the court of a woman's quarters to learn, you know, how is it going? What's she going through? And each young woman uh, came and had her place before King Ahasuerus, and she completed her 12 months preparations. Gals, how would you like to take the next 12 months, and all you have to do is get a, um, um, what do they call these things, a medicure? No, what, what do they call them? What a, huh? Manicure. Not a manicure, a manicure. <laughs> I mean, it's just, just getting spoiled and just pampered and massages and, and beauty treatments and makeovers for getting prepared to just look beautiful before the king. And uh, six months of oil and myrrh and six months of perfume, that sounds pretty good. And everybody had their chance before the king And finally, uh, verse 15, it comes up to Esther. And um, verse 15, now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Hebahel, the daughter of Mordecai, 
who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing. And um, Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. And so Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, the month of Tibeth in the seventh year of his reign. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all of the other women. She obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her and made her queen instead of Vashti. And just like that, you have a Jewish woman who was married now to the most powerful man in the world, and that would be Xerxes. He had a great big party, and they all came together. Verse 20, now Esther had not yet revealed her kindred and her people, just said Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. Now, in verse, there's a change of thought here. Now she's married to the king. And what happens in verse 21 through 23 is a plot by a couple of the guides, uh, the guards who are in charge of, I, I suppose, protecting the king. It says, in those days, Mordecai sat within the king's gate, and two of the king's eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh, the doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. In other words, a coup is on, and they want to take him out. But the matter became known to Mordecai. The word was out. There's people that want to take you out, King Ahasuerus. So Mordecai goes and tells Queen Esther, and Esther tells the king in Mordecai's name. said, my uncle Mordecai came up to me and said, there's a couple guys that are after your head. You better check it out. And so he made the inquiry, he checked it out, found out it was confirmed, and both were hanged on the gallows as it is written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So we just have this event that's gonna come back a little bit later. We're gonna forget about it for now, but it's gonna re-enter our story. All right, in chapter three, we're introduced to the bad guy. His name is Haman. And um, Haman, let me just read a a paragraph that uh, McGee has on Haman. This is a chapter in the life of the Jew who has been duplicated many, many times. When you read this chapter, you can almost substitute the name of Pharaoh instead of Haman, or you can substitute the name of Hitler or NASA. In fact, there are many names that would fit in here. There never has been a time since Israel became a nation down in the land of Egypt to the present moment that there has not been a movement somewhere to exterminate them. All right, my first sidetracked here after comments, McGee, uh, 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 J. McGee's comments. We're going to be introduced to him. Let's just read verse one here and we'll do a little sidetrack. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, and he's an Agite, all right? And and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So here's a guy named Haman, and he's an Agite. All right, now we need to do, this is one of the, the reasons we go chapter by chapter and verse by verse. That should trigger a memory for you, the Agites. Was trigger a bell in your head? Go back to Saul, and what did the Lord tell Saul to do? If you don't remember, let's turn it back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul was actually rejected from being king because of his disobedience when it came to um, the Amalekites or the Agites, Amalek. Chapter 15, we're actually going to read the first eight verses here. Now Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I want to punish what Amalek did to Israel, how they laid in wait for him in the way when they came up from Egypt. I want you to go and attack Amalek. 
I want you to utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman. Why? So they won't reproduce is the idea. And all that they have. And Samuel gathered the people together and numbered them and tell them 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek, laid in wait in the valley. He said to the Kenites, you guys better get out of here, get away from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. But notice this. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed the people with the edge of the sword, but not all of them. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and all that was good and willing, and he utterly destroyed them. But everything despised and worthless, they were utterly destroyed. Because of this event here, you think, why would God call for the utter destruction of a whole people? Well, one of the answers is, turn back to chapter 3, verse 1 of the book of Esther. Because if Saul would have done his job, there would have never been a Haman. There would have never been any more um, Amalekites. And uh, here we have one of the reasons they almost were successful with this plot to literally destroy every Jew living on the planet. And I could really get sidetracked here just talking about spiritual warfare and how every generation has, in this case during the time of Esther, a Haman. In in my father's lifetime, it would have been Hitler. But in my lifetime, it's the clerics in Iran. And this is why the speech that took place yesterday in Washington, D.C., Benjamin Netanyahu went right back to the book of Esther, and he says it's happening again. And he laid it out crystal clear. He says this is what they want. They've openly said we want the um, nuclear weapons for peaceful purposes, and everybody on the planet believes that one. And when they've openly declared that they want to kill the great Satan, who's the great Satan to them? That's you. That's me. That's the United States of America. Israel's only the little one. But it's, it's their charter. Everybody knows it. But it's like, uh, you know, the 800-pound grill in the room. Nobody wants to talk about it. That's why um, our president was off away and not wanting to deal with it. We're actually making these deals right now, and if they go through, um, interesting. One of the things that uh, Bibi says is, um, you know, for the first time in 2,500 years, we can fight our own battles if we have to. Ooh, I I don't know if everybody caught what he was actually saying. He was drawing a a line in the sand. And I I see Clint Eastwood with a gun saying, go ahead, make my day. (laughs) And he wasn't afraid to say it. He says, if we have to stand alone, we will. But then he said, but I believe that America will stand with Israel. And that got the loudest applause, I think, of his entire speech. But he let it be known that what was happening in Esther's time is being repeated right now, this night, as we speak. It is Purim. And what are the chances, what are the probabilities that the setting in the world today is over if they get one of these weapons, what took Hitler um, the years to kill six million, if they actually do get a bomb, do you think for a second that they won't use it against us or Israel? And if you, don't, if you haven't done your homework on this, guys, it's important that you, you learn about the difference in the Muslim religion between the, the Sunnis and the Shiites and their hatred towards each other. The only thing they hate more is us and the, the Jews, the only democracy that's in the Middle East. So, you know, he was uh, pleading. It was probably one of the most eloquent, 
eloquent uh, presentations that I think has ever been spoken in our capital. But that's my feelings on that. How sidetracked did I get? I got to chapter 3, verse 1. Another Hitler whose name is Haman. Every generation has one. And uh, we're living in a time where these things are happening again. All right, verse 2. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and uh, paid homage to Haman. And so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. Now, why wouldn't he bow down? Well, for the same reason that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. They stood up like sore thumbs. Everybody else bowing down. Not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, Haman gets this promotion, and um, everybody's bowing down big time, but Mordecai wouldn't only because of God's word that says you will bow down to no man or image except the Lord your God. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily that he wouldn't listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Okay, the word is out. He's one of them. He's one of those who, whose God says they can't bow to any idol or any other, any other God but the Lord God. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. We're dealing here, you mean there's more than one of them? All these other Jews? And all the Jews, and he sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. What Hitler called the final solution is the complete elimination of all the Jews. This is demonic. This is Satan's only plan that he has. It's the only card he has to play is the destruction, the complete annihilation of the Jewish people. And it goes all the way back here. So, how to get rid of them? Well, Hitler had his own ways. We talked about that on Sunday. I thought, interesting timing. Psalm 102 on Sunday and the Feast of Purim on Wednesday. Interesting. So here's where we get the feast itself and how Purim gets its name. Verse 7. Now in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur. And I have in parentheses in my Bible, that is the lot. They rolled the dice before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So the day to kill the Jews came about as a result of tossing the dice, and it came out to a certain month and a certain day, and that's where we get the name Purim because of the casting of of the, the lots here. And then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, you know, there's this group of people, you know, they're kind of scattered around the country and all the provinces. Their laws are different from all the other people's. They don't keep your laws, king. Therefore, let it be fitting for the king to let them there remain. If it please the king, let it decree be written that they be destroyed. And I'll tell you what, I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury. Now he catches them completely off guard. He has no idea that his wife is Jewish. And here is one man's vindictiveness and rage because one Jew will not bow down to him. He wants to destroy an entire ethnic group of people. Know that there's human involvement, but this is demonic and satanically inspired. That's what's going on behind the scenes here. And uh, I don't think the king gave it a whole lot of thought. Uh, Just like he strung up the two guys that wanted to take him out, 
I mean, there's other people out there that are just like the two guys that I just strung up that were trying to take me out. Get rid of them. Haman, I just raised you up to this position to have this authority. Go ahead. So the king took his signet ring, gave it to Haman, the son, and again, I'm going to emphasize, of the Agagite. He shouldn't have been there in the first place if Saul would have, was doing his job. The enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with as you seem good. And then the king's scribe called on the 13th day of the first month of the decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. And all the king satraps to the governors, each one over each province, to all the officials of the people, to every province according to the script, to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it is written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And as soon as that happened, as soon as that signet ring was done, nothing can change it. Not even the king himself can change it. And the letter was sent by couriers to all the different districts. From young and old, they all received it. And on the 13th day, on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder and take their possessions. Isn't it interesting that that's exactly what Hitler did? In uh, Auschwitz, I was talking a little bit about it on Sunday. I've been in um, going, they turned it into museums. And um, every, every one of the buildings at Auschwitz usually contained um, either the pictures, the names, some of them just the possessions that were gathered when they got off the train at Auschwitz. And they're still there. The names are still in the suitcases. Whole rooms half the size just filled with human hair and shoes and shoes upon shoes upon shoes, pottery, you name it, jewelry, exactly what happened. He says, go ahead, you, have, you guys have permission. You go to the Jews, just take what you want and we're gonna kill them and you can have their possessions. And the couriers went out. A copy of the document, verse 14, was issued as law in every province being published for all the people that they should be ready for that day. And the couriers went out, hastened by the king's command and the decree was proclaimed in Sushan the citadel. And so the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Sushan was perplexed. They go, what's up with this? Go out and why this edict? Now, the effect that it has, chapter 4, <clears throat> on, on uh, Mordecai, because I think he realizes this, the serious the implications of uh, what he did and what the consequences are going to be. When Mordecai learned what had happened, that it was already signed, sealed, and delivered, and he knows it can't be changed, that he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes, cried out loud and bitter. He went as far as the square in front of the king's gate that no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command decree arrived, there was great mourning, and the Jews were fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This is a death sentence. And during this time, nothing can change it. It's been made. No turning back on this order. So Esther's maid and eunuch came and told her, now she knows, she's greatly distressed, and um, she wants to get a hold of uh, Uncle Mordecai to learn what's going on here, verse 5. So they called for Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's and Mordecai told her all that had happened, the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. And he also gave her a copy of the written decree so she could read it for herself. And, um, and he showed it to Esther and he explained it to her that he might command her to go to the king 
to make supplication to him and plead before him, before her people. So basically now, I think Uncle Mordecai realizes he's only got one chance, and somehow that's to get Esther to plead to the king on her behalf and just let the king know that she also is a Jew and that this decree would fall on her. Well, the rest of this chapter, she explains to, to Uncle Mordecai, look, if, if you do what you want, you're asking me to do, I can't go in to the king unannounced. He hasn't called for me for the last 30 days. I cannot just go walking in, because if I do, and if he doesn't hold out his golden scepter, he, that is a death sentence on me, and that can't be changed either. And he's explaining this, Esther is explaining this to Uncle Mordecai. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Verse 13, then Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than any other Jew. It's like Vashti. Um, If the king said it and they find out you're Jewish, then the the edict will apply to you also. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Interesting. You know, um, the Lord always has a way of defending uh, his people. And he's done it from generation to generation to generation. And so he says, you, you can do it. You can be the instrument. But know this, if you don't, then the Lord will raise up help from some other place. But you and your father's house, have no doubt about it, you will perish. And here's, uh, uh, here's most, one of the most um, quotable verses in the entire Bible. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's one of my favorite lines in the Bible. I don't have too many favorite lines in the Bible. This is just one of them right here. What a great title for such a time as this. Esther, why do you think the Lord in, in uh, eons past said, I, I think I'll make you one of the most beautiful women in the world. But my reason and purpose is that someday the most powerful man in the world is going to take notice of you. And it's going to be during a time in the spiritual realm that I'm going to raise up an agite that Saul should have taken care of and didn't. And how do you know that you're not beautiful to stand in the gap right now and speak on behalf of your people? That your very creation isn't for such a time as this. Let's make it personal. Uh, We go through life doing our day-by-day stuff, and all of a sudden we're put in this situation where we can make a difference. We don't see it coming. We don't know that's the reason. But all of a sudden you find yourself where you could be an influence in a person's life. Your participation could make a difference maybe in somebody's salvation. You just never know. That that time doesn't come, that day doesn't come, where all of a sudden, like Uncle Mordecai comes up and says, how do you know that everything in your life has to come to this moment and this time for such a time as this? And that's what's happening here. So, verse 15, Esther told them to return and give this answer to Mordecai. Get all the Jews who are present in Sushan and tell them it's time for a prayer meeting. Tell them to fast and neither eat nor pray for three days and three nights and my maids and we'll do the same. And so I will go in to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. What an attitude, you know. It's like, like um, Paul, after he's stoned. And, um, and when he's, uh, a prophet comes up and binds himself before he goes to Jerusalem and says, Paul, this is what's going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem. They're going to bind you. And Paul says, why are you guys breaking my heart so? 
Don't you realize I'm ready to lay down my life for the Lord? Now, how do you defeat that? And that's basically what she's saying here. If I perish, I perish. Um, Then Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. I think we can get through five. Chapter five, it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. And so it was, the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. There was probably a lot of commotion going on, maybe matters of business being taken care of. Now, out of the corner of his eye, there she is. And she's all dolled up. She's got a royal gown on. And, of course, the king realizes he hasn't called for her. Yet she's there. What's he going to do? And I think he probably smiled, maybe winked at her, because of what's said next. The king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Well, she's off the hook. She's not going to die. She found favor in the king's eyes. And Esther went near, touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what do you want, honey? (laughs) That's Dwight's translation, but basically that's it. What's your request? Uh, I'll, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. You know, he was that uh, in love with Esther, or at least her beauty. And uh, Esther answered, said, well, if it pleases the king, I'd, I'd like to have a little tea party with you and Haman today. Uh, I, I've prepared. And then the king said, go get Haman, bring him in quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, so what's up? What's your predict? Uh, petition. It'll be granted to you. It will be done. I'm to half the kingdom. What do you want? And Esther answered and said, my, my petition and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of my king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and f- fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to a, a banquet, a special uh, supper, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I'll tell you what you want to know. Okay, end of party, end of story. Haman is the happiest man in the world. He's going home and telling his wife, guess what happened to me today? So Haman went out that day joyful, glad heart. That is, until he saw Haman in the king's gate, that he did not stand or tremble before him, and he was filled with indignation nation against Mordecai. So he goes from feeling top of the mountain to rage because this Jew won't bow down. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, went home, and he called for his friends and his wife. And Haman told them all the great riches, the multitude of his children, and all the ways in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced above all the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, King Esther invited me and no one else but me to come to the king to a banquet that she's prepared. And tomorrow, I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this means nothing to me so long as that Jew Mordecai is alive. And so this time his wife speaks up. So you're a rich, big, big, powerful guy now. Why don't you just take the guy out? Last verse of chapter 5. His wife said and his friends, why don't you just build a gallows 50 cubits high? And in the morning suggested the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go to your party and you won't be bothered and you'll be merry. And the thing pleased Haman so that he had the gallows made. I can't resist, guys. I've got to get into chapter 6 because it's such a great story and ending it on such the way the Lord turns things around. Remember the two guys that Uncle Mordecai told Esther, hey, there's a couple guys that want to take you out? And that was in chapter two. Well, now in chapter six, this is the night 
when the next morning comes, well, this is when Haman is uh, uh, going to be found out. Verse 1. That night, the king couldn't sleep. Um, so, one of the commands was to bring the book of the records of the chronicles that were before the king. He thought, I'll read until I get tired and go to sleep. And then it was found written that there's this guy named Mordecai who told of Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, and the doorkeepers who had sought to kill or lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And he goes, huh, I forgot all about that. That night he couldn't sleep. And the king said, whatever happened to Mordecai? How did I ever reward him uh, for this? And the king's servants who attended said, well, nothing. Nothing's been done for him. And then the king said, well, that's not right. Who's in the court? Go, who's outside my door right now? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So the king's servant said to him, well, Haman's standing out there in the court, and and the king says, great, go get him, bring him in. And Haman came in, the king said, couldn't sleep, and um, I've been thinking some things over, and he says, what do you think should be done for a man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, well, I think for whom the king delights to honor, I think, you know, a royal robe would be nice, um, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, that'd be nice. How would a royal crest placed upon his head? That'd be good. Ah, then let this robe and horse be delivered into one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor, and parade him on horseback through the entire city square, and proclaim as they're going through the city, this will be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. The king says, that sounds great. And he said to Haman, great, let's do it. Get the robe, get the horse, and all that you have. And I want you to do this for um, Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. And you tell me our Lord doesn't have a sense of humor? Talking about turning the tables, isn't that what the Lord always does? And then with his enemies, he turns the tables. The very plot that he wants to destroy Mordecai on, he turns it into a blessing. <laughs> Talking about humble pie. So Haman took the robe and the horse, can you imagine this? And he arrayed Mordecai and he led him on horseback through the city square. And he had to be the one to proclaim, this shall be done to the man the king delights to honor, choking on every word. And afterwards, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hastened to his house mourning with his head covered. And when Haman told his wife and his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fail is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to king to bring Haman because he's got a banquet to go to at Esther's house. To be continued. <laughs> okay. The application, guys, tonight as we see, the Bible tells us that the stage is being set. The Prime Minister of Israel tried to say that um, history repeats itself, and it's repeating itself this night in Israel, in Purim. Don't think that the Israeli military doesn't have permission. They do from Saudi Arabia, because the Saudis fear Iran very, very much, and they've given Israel permission to fly over if they want to. And um, that's where we are in time this evening. So this takes place 473 B.C. 
Happened again during World War II, and it's happening again right now, tonight, as I speak. It's unfolding. And it's going to happen again. And Iran and Russia. David Hawking spoke about this this morning on standing up for the truth that uh, what's unfolding right now in the Middle East and current events and tying in these, these very things here. And so as we go through the book of Esther on Sunday, what we'll do is we'll, we'll finish, finish it up and, and hopefully tie together and piece together more of the dots that are there. Let's stand and uh, close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We pause and thank you, Lord, <clears throat> for your word and how you, how your word is true, that you will bless those who bless Israel, but you will curse those who curse Israel. And Satan's schemes will continue, but Lord, we know your word promises that they'll never be destroyed, that you will come and deliver them, and you will reign over the house of David forever and ever. And we thank you for this hope, and we thank you for your word tonight. In closing, I do pray for Benjamin Netanyahu and the people of Israel on the Feast of Purim. I also pray for our own president, that somehow, some way, Lord, that you would shake his foundations and that you would help him somehow come to his senses in realizing that uh, he's only setting himself up for his own fall if he, stay, if he stands against Israel. So I do pray for him, as your word tells us to. Bless your people as we go out tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.